You're listening to The Reopening, a podcast that asks, how will America work through the COVID-19 pandemic? How will we innovate? And how will it change our global economy? Each week, we invite top business leaders to share their insights on the road to economic revival here at home and around the world. Today, our guest is Kyusong Lee, co-chief executive of the Carlisle Group. A longtime member of Carlisle's executive management group, Kyusong also serves on the board of the U.S.-China Business Council. We'll hear his unique perspective on the global economy. We'll also discuss how leaders are improvising and reimagining business for a changed reality, the challenges of sustaining a strong corporate culture, and the role of ingenuity and adaptation in turbulent times. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Scott Miller. And this is The Reopening. Kyusong Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. There's a lot of people out there that want to hear from you, and we're really lucky to have you here today. So the first question I want to ask you is, as CEO of the Carlisle Group, your organization is in every country. You're involved in so many industries. What are you seeing out there? and What are CEOs thinking about as they're imagining restarting and getting back into the office? Andrew and Scott, thank you for having me. I think it's fair to say the restarting, the reopening, it's not monolithic. We're seeing different regions in different parts of the world employ different strategies and the recoveries uh, are going to look different. So if you start in China, for instance, um, there's definitely been a V-shaped bounce back without a doubt. It may be that China's economy does not even go into recession this year when all is said and done. We'll see. What we are noticing is that the extent of the bounce back is such that they're still operating probably at like a 90% level pre-COVID. And they've kind of petered out. Now, whether or not that can push through and keep going will be determined the second half of the year. But clearly, they're on their front step. Travel is starting to get going. The industrial sector is going. The consumer is out. Traffic is lower. But e-commerce is making up for that. But it's clearly more V-shaped than not. Europe has surprised us in that the recovery looks like the bounce back is a bit stronger than we would have thought. And we're attributing that basically to the policy response in Europe, which was in large part designed to keep employment up. They seem to have gotten to a place where as they restart in different countries, they may be starting from a better place than the United States. So let me now pivot to the U.S., Clearly, we were not as prepared as we should have been in hindsight. Clearly, this has really rocked us. I personally do not imagine a V-shaped recovery. I do think there is a bounce back. But I think for a lot of reasons, the recovery in the United States is going to go in fits and starts and could be a little bit tougher than we imagine. Uh, We can get into that in a moment if you want. So it's different in different places. And, you know, every CEO that I talk to is trying to reimagine what should their business really look like on the other side of COVID-19? Many are trying to reinvent how things get done. Many of them are trying to understand how do we incorporate technology and the new ways to, to work from home in their workflow and processes. Many of them are trying to reimagine supply chains in light of what has happened. And many are trying to take into account what we're seeing geopolitically around the world with respect to relationships as they design future strategy and, and, and where they want to take their company. So lots of food for thought, but you know, our, our platform at Carlisle is terrific in a time like this because it enables us to see all around the world, different countries, different regions, different industries, different types of uh, businesses, 
And it's very different what we're seeing in different parts of the world. I want to bring my colleague Scott Miller in. Let me uh, ask you two specific questions. One, on China, what you described was a very solid recovery of the domestic economy, which is quite encouraging, and that's great news. However, China is also an export-led economy, and recovery in the export sector will depend to a great extent on demand from the import markets. And so I'd like to get your thoughts on that. And second, on the United States, because of our federal system, because we're America, uh, we tend to get into these things slow, and then we have 50 different recovery plans and all going at different paces. And if you could describe that and whether you, you think that's bad, good, or, or what, what, you'd, what you'd recommend in the future for the U.S. getting its act together, that would help a lot. With respect to China, China is so important to the supply chains, especially on the industrial side around the world, obviously. But what people don't appreciate is China is still much more domestically driven than you'd think. About high 70s, close to 80% of their economy is still driven in some shape or form more domestically than not. And so, yes, while they wait for the rest of the world to recover, and it could impact them, it may not be as a big a percentage to their output nationally as you'd think. So they still have a lot of forces under their control in terms of just domestic. Now, the other important thing, though, Scott, is in the U.S. and in Europe, there's been massive policy response, especially on the fiscal side. If you think about China, they have a lot of ammunition to go. They have virtually not even started with fiscal stimulus of any kind. And so we see their V-shaped recovery as having been much more organic. And they now have all the resources of fiscal stimulus to keep things going or to accelerate it at their choosing. Whereas with respect to Europe and the U.S., in large part, a lot of stimulus has already occurred just to keep folks in jobs or just to sustain businesses as a bridge to get the economy going. A lot of regions are starting from, from different places. And I would just point out, China is not as export-oriented as you might think, and they still have a lot of policy response left in terms of continuing. With respect to the United States recovery, I think the way you phrased it is really good. Recovery. I think could be challenged in the United States for a bunch of reasons. First, as you rightly point out, every state doing it a little bit differently. So there isn't enormous consistency and there are lots of different standards among the different states. But also there are issues with respect to data. And what I mean by that is in the future, all good mitigation plans and, and dealing with these types of healthcare crises in the future will require uh, very good contact tracing. And contact tracing ultimately is not only a logistical effort, but it's also an effort which relies heavily on the sharing of data and trying to figure out what should be private, what shouldn't be, what is the government allowed to do and share among states, et cetera, is not quite yet really worked out. Whereas in other parts of the world, especially in the Far East, it's much more monolithic in nature. They can kind of do what they want. And as a result, it's, it's just easier to do the contact tracing for them over there. So I would say the privacy issues and data are going to be an issue here in the States moving forward. You then have liability issues here. There's a lot of concern on the parts of business to understand what type of liability they have as they try to figure out how to bring employees back. And that's not even starting to imagine in certain cities like New York City, they're just pure physical, logistical constraints to restarting. Like, how do you get people 
into work if they rely on mass transit? How do you get them through lobbies, through turnstiles, into elevators if it's a very vertical work environment relying on density? To jam 10,000 employees uh, and get them to their desks in a big tower and get them there between the hours of 7.30 and 9 a.m. in a safe way, that's just mathematically difficult, if not unsolvable, right? So these are all the different types of issues that we're going to be wrestling with. Clearly, we restarted, and it's going to be great to see if this progress can continue. But I do think there are more, you know, in certain cities, certain real stumbling blocks and more medium, longer term, uh, real issues that as a nation, we're going to have to figure out how to tackle, especially as it relates to data, privacy, liability issues, et cetera. Are there any real opportunities that you're seeing as you're talking to your people under management CEOs that you're working with? What are, what are some of the opportunities you're seeing as people are reorganizing and thinking about how to do some of these complex things? Sure. Look, the obvious one is application of technology with respect to changing work processes. So when you're working from home and working remotely, large numbers of CEOs are thinking, I could really increase productivity, which is, of course, the flip side of saying I'm increasing efficiency with respect to my workforce. Do I need all those employees to keep doing what they used to be doing when there may be a new way to do it? With respect to industry sectors, you know, I kind of think about it in terms of the letter C. Anything to do with collaboration, cashless, e-commerce, the cloud, these are all great sectors that clearly have shown to, in some cases, accelerate their growth that are going to be opportunities for folks as they're trying to build their businesses. Well, that makes a lot of sense to think about this, the contactless and, and collaboration tools being in high demand suddenly. And clearly, there are winners in this. You look at Amazon, you look at the delivery services, there are firms that came out ahead. There's a second tier of firms that are adapting and improvising and trying to succeed. I've seen a sort of a, a third tier of firms who were trying to muddle through and look like it's not going to be an option. I'd put that, I'd put Hertz and bricks and mortar retailing generally. Can you talk about what the future looks like for those in the second and third tier? The one great thing about America and capitalism is folks adapt. And so who knows how people adapt and come up with great new ways to deal with adversity in order to propel their businesses. But I would make the following observation that in many ways, the COVID-19 experience by the way, it's by no means over yet, right? Like we should not be declaring victory. There's still a lot more that's unknown right. than, than known. I would suggest that what the virus though is doing is it's putting a spotlight and showing in, in a very accelerated fashion who the winners are and who the losers might be. And it's making it very stark. And businesses that their business models may have taken five, 10 years to develop are doing it in six months to a year because of the spotlight that's being put on what is required to succeed and what are the business models that are well positioned to succeed. And similarly, I think with respect to the have-nots, you're seeing lots of businesses where all of a sudden people are saying, oh my gosh, this business will just not work in the new world. And so it's funny how investors can quickly adapt and how people quickly adapt to your point about muddling through, I, I, I see people in two camps. There are those who are experiencing this environment. They're trying to, what I would say, be resilient, survive, and then return. And then there are a group of folks who are saying, 
you know what, it's time to coexist and adapt. And I think the latter group, the mentality of saying, how do we coexist with this, adapt and keep winning, is the group that is being much more forward thinking and aggressive about changing their businesses or thinking of new ways to do things which are going to fundamentally step function their business to a new place. Whereas the, the former group, let me just survive and then we return. You can tell just by the phraseology, they're much more willing or, or needing to cling to how things have always been. And it'll be interesting to see how those two camps continue their thinking as we uh, get through this crisis. So how does a investment firm like Carlisle, what makes you all competent at analyzing and managing risk in assets in the current economic environment? It seems like an impossible task. <laughs> well, it, it we'll only know in hindsight. In the end, Andrew, I think it comes down to some very simple things. It, and it's not really about the math or the numbers. It's about having great people. It's about connecting them all together so that they have as many viewpoints and a diversity of experiences in, in the firm being all brought together so that we can make great judgments. We're in the judgment business. We're in the decision-making business. And we need the best available information and on-the-ground perspectives to inform us on how to make those decisions. So if you think about it, of course you need great people. Of course you need industry experts. Of course you need connectivity. At the end of the day, what that means is you need a great culture. You need a culture at a firm that wants to share, that wants to solicit diversity of background, experience, and insights from all parts of the world. You want a culture that is multicultural in perspective, not international, not global. It's got to be multicultural. Uh, and you want a firm whose culture wants there to be real active connectivity in a world which is increasingly decoupling and separating. And so if you can bring all that together, and I know it's kind of this loosey-goosey word that all CEOs throw out and use, but there's nothing at the end of the day more important than that culture. And firms with strong cultures will manage these crises incredibly well because by definition, they have employees that their value system wants promotes teamwork and wants to share views and wants to get help. And to me, that's what's going to enable us, Andrew, to make the right judgment calls as we're navigating this incredibly complex environment. To put this in context, you have $217 billion under management, and you've got over 1,700 employees who are involved in that management in one way or another. So this is a culture that has a lot riding on it. And you got a lot of people to put into that culture. How do, how do you do it? Well, you know, it takes a ton of experience. Having a long-term perspective, which we have, because that's what our business is all about, and having an orientation that, yes, we're in the financial services business, we're in the asset management business, but we're really looking to find the, the best management partners and CEOs. And our major mindset is, how do we build better companies together? How do we make things better at our portfolio companies. And if you have a long-term mindset and you have that impact-driven approach of saying, how do we make things better? The returns will follow, right? And so Carlisle, from its inception, we've always thought about how do we find the best management teams, 
find the greatest companies, and then partner together with a long-term perspective to build and to make these companies better. If we can do that, good things occur. What I'm concerned about is the remote environment does run the risk that great companies, their cultures can get eroded because using video technology is not conducive in the end necessarily to promoting culture. It's very hard to onboard employees. You have issues with inclusivity in a remote environment. You know, the, the whole apprenticeship model is very difficult to execute when we're all separated. There are lots of efficiency and productivity benefits and video technology sustains us, like we can keep the business going. I just don't know if it's truly sustainable with respect to our culture, because I do fear cultures are starting to erode and decay because you just can't have the connectivity to build relationships, understand nuances, uh, and, and, and you know, walk the walk and talk the talk, so to speak, with respect to culture, which doesn't get built by mandate. You, you don't communicate culture through a video platform. You, you communicate culture by doing it day in and day out with all your, your employees. And so, you know, and I know this is a bit of a tangent, but to the extent that we are all reimagining the future of the work environment, no doubt video platforms are going to be an essential part of it. But I think great CEOs are going to have to think through the ramifications of that and appreciate that video platforms are a complement to, but not a substitute for real old-fashioned interaction uh, because of the impact on culture. Yeah, and to my mind, this is not a tangent at all because we are social creatures. And throughout our history, uh, throughout evolution, cultures have been built by human interaction. And we're at a very unique point where, and obviously Carlisle is known for a very strong corporate culture, but all elements of culture come from human interaction. And the space we're in now is a very different kind of interaction. What you thought was a tangent, I think, is one of the central challenges of management across the board in this environment. I presume that any government leader, any elected official who's sentient is asking you for advice. Well, you know, it's interesting. There are lots of recovery task forces that have been formed at a whole various levels, states, nationally, et cetera. And um, I'm involved with some of them. And it's going to be very interesting to see how the different states incorporate the advice that they're getting. Because the picture that's presented locally is different than nationally. And in different cities and different states and different regions, the fact pattern could be different. And if there's one thing that I think all of us have to appreciate is the impact of COVID is very different based on your perspective and where you sit and where you are. If you're in New York City, it's a very different story than perhaps in other parts of the country. And folks are going to have to realize that. I can tell you from a New York City experience, the ecosystem of New York City is surely taking a hit. Uh, there's no other way around it the amount of international travel that comes to New York, the cultural institutions, the performing arts, all the restaurants, uh, the density of the city, the way folks get to the city for work, without a doubt, that ecosystem has taken a bit of a hit. They've got unbelievably smart leaders uh, all involved trying to help out. I have no doubt New York City will be back and will be back in force. But it's not going to be with a snap of the fingers. It's going to take some real effort and time and concerted multilateral teamwork amongst all the different stakeholders within New York City to make it all happen. 
Well, New York is more than just a financial center. It is a generator of ideas. It is the sort of a source of creativity for the whole country. So I'm encouraged that you foresee a comeback. Oh, absolutely. And we have all the right folks who are working really hard. All the different constituents and stakeholders are all pitching in, not out of self-interest, but just out of the fact that, you know, we all, we're all proud of the city and know how vibrant of a community is, and we all want it back. Uh, the sooner the better, right? Uh, it's just that it's got unique challenges, so we're all going to have to lean in and do our share. It's going to take some sacrifice. Like I said, we need to make sure that all voices are heard as we try to get that ecosystem going again. Q, I want to ask you something. Um, the other day we were talking about, and this is a little bit in the weeds, but I think it's really important and it speaks to the thing you were talking about before about video culture. You mentioned that in this environment where we're all virtual, it's going to be really hard to integrate new employees, to onboard new employees. And it's also going to be hard for people that might have a hard time speaking up in meetings to speak up in meetings. Tell me a little bit about that, because I, I was fascinated by that. As someone who manages people and someone who has, a, you know, a relatively big staff, I, you know, I started thinking about that a lot, and it wasn't something I thought about previously before our conversation, and I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit here. Sure, happy to. I mean, all of us are being affected, and, and let's, let's just be honest. Working remotely is wearing, it's tiring, it wears you down psychologically, and it's physically draining, because when you're working in a place where your personal boundaries and your professional boundaries are all kind of confused. And what people don't realize is with video, you're actually working harder than you've ever worked before because the setup time for meetings has gone away. You're not taking a cab to go to a different meeting or you're not driving in a car or, or taking a plane ride somewhere. It's instantaneous. So I'm in Singapore at 7 a.m. Then I beam over to London, and then I can go up to California. I mean, I can go around the world in a matter of a snap of a finger. And um, those meetings are very draining because you are constantly being looked at and you need to be paying attention in these video uh, meetings. Yeah, you're on television. Exactly right. Your question about onboarding, it's going to be a bit challenging if this continues because when you have new employees start, there's no better way to get them acclimated to understanding who we are as a firm, what our values are, and start appreciating and understanding what the culture is because they're in training, you're sharing stories, they're going through sessions together and bonding, they're interacting with folks that we bring in to teach certain modules. It's very difficult to do that in a remote way. You can't take them to the restaurant. You can't enjoy a night out together. You can't form small little groups and have them go off and really bond and understand the history of the firm and share the mythology that often makes up a part of your culture, right? So all of those things are, are now very difficult to execute against, which is why I, I made the comments earlier that this remote environment is probably over the long term damaging to corporate culture. Scott? If I could shift gears, we have a great power rivalry going on, and it's affecting everybody's business. Uh, and I'd just be very interested in your thoughts on the U.S.-China tensions and what you foresee in that relationship. Yeah, it's troubling. We thought the phase one agreement would kind of put an end to the tensions for a while as both sides now worked to make phase one real and then hopefully move on to phase two. 
clearly there's a, a bit of a, a reset happening right now because of the virus. I think it is exceptionally important for real reasons as well as symbolic that we keep supporting the phase one agreements that are in place. But no doubt you are seeing a continued shift and a slight, I would say, continued decoupling between the two countries. In my mind, over the long term, this isn't great. It's the number one, number two economies in the world. And we are much better off with everyone working together and having healthy relationships than, than not. I mean, that's, that's just the, the bottom line. There are very important parts of industry that are already decoupled. So if you, if you think about the internet economy, broadly speaking, you have on one axis, Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, and another one, Amazon, Google, Facebook. They're two very different ecosystems, different vendors, supply chains, different technology. And those two ecosystems, in my mind, aren't ever really going to be interacting to, into one, quote unquote, global system. They're going to stay separate and they're thriving within each of their axes. Two very different ecosystems. So in many respects, in certain industries, we've already decoupled. And whether or not other industries follow in this way, for instance, healthcare, is, is a big open question. Over time, I think both ecosystems, the Chinese and the US, we're going to have to figure out what the right way is to constructively engage. And it's going to have to be done through mutual respect and through a real understanding that constructive engagement, by the way, with fair standards, with a basis where international standards of fairness are being complied with. You know, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be tough. We should be tough in order to make sure that our rights are being protected and similarly on their side. But over time, we're much better off if these ecosystems out of respect can constructively engage on basis of fair international market-based standards. And to me, that's where we have to eventually get to. The politics of the day are going to make that really tough in the short term. So to try to predict that, I think, is very difficult. But I would say two last things on this, which is I do think the phase one deal being preserved and complied with is exceptionally important, if, if anything, for symbolic reasons. And two, I think we have to be careful with this narrative around supply chains and trying to bring everything to Europe or to home and to try to disassemble supply chains. That is much harder to do than people think. And yes, all corporations need to have resiliency in their supply chain, but resiliency does not mean necessarily keep it you know, monolithically in one country. So you can build resilient supply chains, but still appreciate that these supply chains need to be very global in nature to enable American companies to be competitive in the global marketplace. Yeah, of course, at the firm level, if you have multiple suppliers in multiple markets versus a sole supplier in your home market, you have better resilience in the former than the, the latter. So uh, I think I hope reason will prevail. You know, I think most of the economists, both in China and the United States, would agree with you that an adult relationship between the two, uh, based on fairness, would be mutually beneficial. We expect a lot of things to change. 
But as you look at the business overall, what trends are changing and which ones are, will be very much the same when we get on the other side? Yeah, Scott, that, that's a great question. You know, if, if I could ask everyone listening to this just to close their eyes and go back to a pre-COVID environment, so let's say fall of last year, and if you closed your eyes and you thought about like what was going on at the time, well, it would be commentary on lower than ideal global growth. Interest rates were low. You'd hear commentary on polarization and nationalism and populism. You'd hear commentary on, on US-China tensions and the threat of decoupling. You'd be hearing about folks saying inflation is gone. There is no inflation. If anything, folks are worried about disinflation. And energy was cheap. By the way, you're, all, you're also hearing commentary about how technology was disrupting businesses and how we were going to have issues with the haves and the have-nots and skilled labor versus unskilled labor and what technology was doing with respect to um, employment moving forward. Now, if I ask you to open your eyes and it's now post-COVID, well, what's going on? Well, you're going to have low global growth. You're going to have really low interest rates for a long period of time. You have disinflation. You have polarization. You have continued disruption by technology. If anything, it's accelerated. And you're seeing continued nationalism, populism, and decoupling between U.S. and China. So in many respects, Scott, what's changed, it's not necessarily that things have changed, but in many ways, these trends are being accelerated by COVID-19. And so as we look at the bigger picture longer term, I don't think things have changed so much as a lot of these trends have started to accelerate and become much more apparent. And you know that, that's kind of the environment that we're imagining uh, moving forward. Q, I, I want to ask you one final question. What gives you hope going forward? What are you looking forward to? Uh, I'm looking forward to going out to a restaurant with my, uh, with my friends and having a great meal and a great bottle of wine. Um, <laughs> what, what gives me hope is ultimately over the long term, it's not the resiliency, but the incredible ability for us to adapt, the innovativeness of companies and the ability for us to incorporate new technologies and to change the way we do things. I mean, that's the essence of American, our system and our capitalism. It's, it's just so vibrant. And I'm lucky I get to see that with a lot of new emerging companies and new investments and new opportunities that come to us all the time. And that gives me huge hope. I think we have unbelievably positioned universities and academic institutions in this country. And the research that's done there is a huge strength of ours. If you think about the backbone of our economy with respect to our financial services systems and our markets, they're incredibly vibrant and world-class. And so, you know, a lot of people talk about how is their system better than our system? And, uh-oh, is this the demise of American capitalism? And I actually think, you know, we're going through a period where you could see another spurt of growth because of the environment causing us to adapt, causing us to innovate. And quite frankly, uh, as I said before, CEOs are reimagining their businesses right now and trying to figure out how to use this hard reset that we've experienced with COVID-19 to invest in and incorporate a lot of this into how they want to drive their businesses moving forward. 
So I think there's a lot of reason for, for hope and optimism. No doubt there's a lot of uncertainty, but you know, it's what makes America great is we've always figured out how to navigate through this type of stuff. Well, Kisong, we're so delighted you made time to come on this program. Uh, I feel like if I could talk to you once a month, I'd be a lot smarter. So we do appreciate the time you spent and, uh, and wish you all the best. And we promise that as soon as restaurants open in New York, a gift certificate is coming your way for a great bottle of wine. Well, Andrew and Scott, th thank you so much. Thanks for having me and, and appreciate all the good work CSIS does. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Reopening. If you like this episode, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find other podcasts from the Center for Strategic and International Studies at csis.org slash podcasts.